0: Like so many Americans, I'm a big fan of the undead. I look forward to a night of nail-biting when a new episode of The Walking Dead airs, and I get excited when Hollywood gears up for the next big-budget film featuring zombie hordes. I also love those rare literary takes on the undead, such as Colson Whitehead's Zone 1, and I even published my own rift on the genre entitled The Cliffs, which imagines what those familiar zombies might do in the Appalachian foothills where I live. If you share my enthusiasm for people not quite alive and not quite dead and, well, not quite people, you're in for a post-Halloween treat. Medieval historian and former gravedigger Scott Bruce has assembled an anthology of tales about the undead that shows we're not alone. Readers have been fascinated by spirits, ghosts, apparitions, demons, and zombies since the start of Western literature. Bruce's anthology, The Penguin Book of the Undead, 1,500 years of supernatural encounters, begins with Homer's Odyssey, and ends with Hamlet. But between those classic stories, he gives us selections from a vast and surprising range of sources—histories, hagiography, personal letters, theological treatises, sagas, and collections of miracles and marvels. In these selections, which are by turns fascinating, surprising, heartbreaking, and sometimes freaky, the undead have never been so fresh. So lively, Scott Bruce. Welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. Uh, you are the author. You have assembled the Penguin Book of the Undead: Fifteen Hundred Years of Supernatural Encounters. It is fascinating. Um, it's the kind of book that I think, my gosh, shouldn't this have already existed with with our abiding fascination and, and zombies and ghouls and ghosts coming back? And here it finally is. Um, how does one suddenly see the need for this book and bring it together? I mean, where, where does this book come from? Tell us, tell us the story that brought you to it. Sure.
1: Um, The the book comes uh, from a number of different strands of interests that go back a long way. Um, I'm a medieval historian and I work on monastic communities primarily in the 10th, 11th and 12th centuries. And um, my interest is really in the monastic imagination, um, how monks, perceive the world around them, um, and you don't have to read too much of monastic literature of the 11th and 12th centuries before you run into ghost stories. Uh, the monks of Cluny, especially the monastery that I study, uh, probably the most powerful monastery in the 11th century, um, wrote many, many ghost stories. Um, but my interest in the undead really goes back a lot further in my life. Um, I was absolutely uh, Fascinated with movies involving the undead as a child, uh, The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad with its wonderful scene of Sakura the Magician animating a skeleton to have a sword fight with Sinbad. And uh, I was an avid player of tabletop Dungeons & Dragons as a teenager and um, fought many an undead with my friends Uh, in in those years. And um, it's I'm not sure if it's coincidental or not that I worked as a gravedigger in college uh there were no undead encounters there um but by the time i uh by the time i started encountering stories of the undead in the middle ages after becoming a professional medievalist it seemed only natural to kind of follow up on this interest and once i started digging as it were um i found that this tradition is uh very very old it goes all the way back to the beginning of western human literature uh the the, the anthology begins with homer's odyssey uh, and it stretches all the way up with incredible continuity until the Protestant Reformation.
0: So there's this this marvelous arc that the book puts together um, where you, you start reading, you know, in classical antiquity. What happens when we, we glance that far back to take a look at the undead? What do we begin to see at the origins of, of this phenomena?
1: Well, it, it's, it's a wonderful question. Right at the very beginning, as the undead take the stage, as it were, in in Western literature, they are already pretty fully formed in that there's 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 clearly uh, a long-held tradition of uh, what the undead are like, how we encounter them, how we communicate with them, and what they're interested in. Now, I should preface this by saying that there really isn't a word for undead in the pre-modern tradition. Um, when I pitched this book to Penguin, I wanted to call it the Penguin Book of Ghosts. Um, because many of the creatures that appear in this text, in these texts are apparitions. They are, they are spirits of the dead that are returning to communicate with the living for various reasons. And my editor said, no, 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 we're going to call it The Penguin Book of the Undead, because Americans are deeply interested in undead. And <laughs> we are. And, said, <laughs> and you are, yes, it's absolutely true. And the, uh, and I said, but you know, the word undead isn't a medieval category. And they said, ah, oh, you can explain it in the introduction, that's fine. And, um, and then as I, as, I, uh, as I looked around, I realized, oh, in fact, undead is a medieval word. Um, it's, it's an old English word. Uh, the word "undeadlich" is coined in the 10th century, um, but it doesn't refer to, you know, shambling corpses or or haunting ghosts. It refers to God. God is the original undead because the word "undeadlich" in Old English means undying, and God is the one who does not die. Um, but anyway, at, after you know, um, uh, forgive the digression. But the uh, but back in the in the most ancient period, um, the undead appear. Uh, on the stage for the very first time in a necromantic context um, and we tend to think of necromancy in a modern fantasy setting as being you know raising bodies from the dead and and um, having them do our will as it were uh, but necromancy in the ancient world was something different and necromancers were really diviners they were people who were able to speak to the dead in order to obtain information that only the dead can know and this is how we see ghosts appearing in Homer's Odyssey um, Odysseus needs to speak to uh, a seer, an Egyptian prophet named Tiresias, who has information that will help him get home after the Trojan War. Uh, But the one snag is that Tiresias is dead. So Odysseus has to learn a necromantic ritual to summon the spirit of Tiresias to chat with him. And it's uh, what's so striking in that passage is that it's not just the ghost of Tiresias that answers the necromantic summons, it is a whole host of ghosts, hundreds of them uh which absolutely terrify Odysseus and his followers, um, but they are all eager to speak, and they are certain types of ghosts. Um, that is, if you die in a certain way in the ancient world, and this carries on into the Middle Ages, if you die in a certain way or if your body is treated in a certain way after your death, then you then your soul becomes agitated and you are much more likely to return as a ghost or to answer a necromantic summoning.
0: So this is fascinating. It seems like the way in which we perceive of of ghosts and the undead now, it's a matter of ontology, right? Their nature is different than us. They're dead. Um, But at the start, you're saying it's something much more like epistemology. We need to know, and that's that's the impulse that brings these creatures onto stage. And, And they want us to know things that maybe we don't quite want to know when we summon them.
1: Well, no that's absolutely true once ghosts are uh, you know the spirits of the dead are fantastic sources of information if you can summon them in part because they they have all sorts of information based not only on their knowledge of where they died so they have they tend to hover around the place of their death and so they collect information about what's happening in the proximity of that area um, but also once they go down into the underworld they they tap into a vast reservoir of information that's held by all the other dead people who are down there um, they also have the advantage of almost always telling the truth um, there's no mendacious ghosts in the in, in the ancient period of the Middle Ages they went if you summon a ghost and bind it by a necromantic summoning then it is compelled to speak the truth um, so they're wonderful informants in that regard and it is really about the, the transfer of information um, The, uh, um, but what is, what's, what's really striking here, though, is, um, the, that the way a person dies really does affect their, their response to a summoning. And one of the kinds of ghosts that Homer picks out, um, As being particularly susceptible are the ghosts of dead warriors, um, the ghosts of people who have died in battle. He calls them the great hosts of battle dead who answer the summons. Um, They carry, they're still brandishing their weapons, they're still wrapped in their bloody armor. Um, And these ghosts are particularly susceptible because they have died too young, usually young men. They have died by violence, the kind of hand-to-hand violence of the ancient world. And they um, also, generally speaking, lie unburied on the battlefield. Um, and that lack of burial is, is really key. Um, if, if a body is uh, just lying on the battlefield somewhere and has uh, had no rights of burial, it has not been properly interred, or similarly we see this if, if, if someone falls off a ship and dies at sea, their spirits um, are, are particularly restless. And in fact, many hauntings in the ancient world are simply ghosts returning to the world of the living to ask for proper burial. Um, they were usually very happy to, to tell people how they died, to lead people to where their body lies in order to achieve the burial that would allow them rest.
0: So it sounds like these, these undead come back to tell us how we should treat our recently dead.
1: Well, this is true. It, these ghost stories in the ancient world are primarily didactic. Uh, they can be scary, um, they can be haunting. Um, but of course, we've been, you know, our modern media does a much better job, especially visual media, um, of, of freaking us out. So these stories can seem <laughs> quaint in their, in their horror <laughs> and rather subtle in their horror. But, um, uh, certainly the image, you know, the apparition of a, of a dead person can be exceedingly frightening, in part because they often look like they did right when they died. Um, and they're, they're very recognizable and it's sometimes very easy to see how they died. But for most of the Western tradition, encounters between the living and the dead are usually these didactic encounters that where the dead is trying to tell the living the dead people are trying to tell the living you know this is how we need to be treated this is this is the the duty the obligation you owe to the dead so that we will not return so that we can rest and move on to the next life now the source of authority with respect to who can talk to the dead and command the dead to reveal who they are and what they want that changes over the course from the, from the great transition between the ancient world, the pagan ancient world, and the Christian Middle Ages. But there's also remarkable continuities there. Um, you would expect the rise of Christianity, you know, this very strong monotheism, uh, to have an impact on um, a long-standing pagan tradition from Greco-Roman culture. And yet what's, what's really fascinating is that in the first centuries of Christianity, we see Christians just wholeheartedly adopting pagan views of this commerce between the living and the dead. You know, early Christian texts are very interested in the last judgment. They're very interested in the end of time. Uh, they're very interested in an imminent second coming. Um, and so there's not a whole lot of room there for early Christian thinkers to begin thinking about, well, what happens to the recently dead? (laughs) Um, And in fact, there's only one reference in the New Testament to a ghost, and it's a case of mistaken identity. Uh, It takes place in the Gospel of Matthew when uh, Jesus is walking on the water and his followers who are in a boat and seeing this kind of, you know, the spirit-like thing hovering over the waves, uh, they call out in fear, oh my gosh, it's a ghost, um, and Jesus has to, you know, calm them down and say, no, it's just me. <laughs> um, and it really is only in the, uh, uh, not until the fourth and fifth centuries where we see Christian intellectuals, uh, w- w- well, the fourth and fifth centuries when we see, you know, this incredible watershed in Western culture where the, um, we we begin having uh, Roman emperors who adopt Christianity and then by the end of the century we have um the uh, the uh, official adoption of christianity as the religion of the roman empire and the outlawing of paganism and the closing of the temples that we really see christians confronted with the problem of ghosts um because they have all we now have all these new pragmatic conversions to christianity Um, we have, and so we have Christian parishioners who are asking their priests and bishops at I'm seeing, I, you know, I'm seeing the ghosts of dead relatives. There's ghosts coming to my house at night. What are these things exactly from a new, from this Christian point of view? And, uh, there's a wonderful debate that takes place in the early fifth century about whether, whether these are really the spirits of the dead as some people think. Um, and, and, and an authority as great as St. Augustine comes forward and says, look at these are not spirits of the dead at all. These are the, you know, there's, they're, they're figments of your imagination or they're um, they're something else. But um, they're certainly not the material return of the dead, you know, in some kind of paper-thin spirit that's coming back to visit you. But God only knows what it is. And, uh, Augustine is incredibly authoritative in the medieval tradition. Most of his teachings are considered to be unassailable. But on this matter, his rejection of the idea that, that the ghosts of dead people return... He is politely ignored through most of the Middle Ages, <laughs> because there is this incredible need for um, continuity in this tradition. Um, the living are unwilling to give up this commerce with the dead. We want to believe that we can still have these relationships. And I think in the pre-modern period, the continuing relationship between living and dead, especially in families, is particularly important given um, you know, the terrifying mortality rate of the pre-modern period, uh, the sheer number of people who die so young. Um, and there's an unwillingness to let go of these relationships, even, even, even though they are so, you know, they can be so abruptly ended. Um, and so what we really see as we transfer from the ancient period into the medieval period, we see one or two people objecting <laughs> to the continuity of this tradition, Augustine being key among them um but many more people uh, many more early medieval christians uh willing to make room and and say no we can appropriate this um you know this belief for our own or as our own and um and we can even appropriate the ancient ghost story and turn it into something new. We can appropriate the stories of the necromancers and instead exchange the necromancers for the saints and give the saints authority to speak to the dead. And so it's a, there's, a, there's a very subtle transition that takes place, but really the tradition is marked by continuity.
0: That is absolutely fascinating. Uh, I, was, I was struck by a phrase that, that you said just a moment ago about the, the commerce between the living and the dead. And I think in our contemporary moment, our thinking about the, the undead is definitely overlaid with notions of, of good and evil, or at least maliciousness. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it doesn't seem as though you know, that that's, marks the origin. Um, that certainly you mentioned fear, but you can have fear without necessarily notions of, of good or evil. I'm curious as to what is the moment that that, that inflection starts to, to permeate the thinking about the undead and our relationship to them?
1: The fear you mean in, not the, in the... fear
0: the, the sense that they could be evil right instead of oh. just dead versions of themselves or they could be good instead of oh. just yeah
1: so um, the identity of um, well this is this is a fa- this is a fascinating question, and it takes us to another aspect of the book um, throughout much of this history from greco Roman antiquity all the way through into the middle ages. Um, there's a strong continuity of the return of dead spirits, often, many of whom are recognizable. They often return to people they know and they are recognized for who they were in life. And, and there's a, there's a mutual exchange that goes on. The dead want something from us, we can help the dead. Um, uh, but in the 12th century, and these, those exchanges tend not to be malicious at all. They tend to be helping. But in the 12th century, we see something brand new. And, um, and this is unusual because, uh, as you know, pre-modern authors do not like novelty. They like tradition. <laughs> they like things. They like time-hallowed authority. <laughs> they like to be able to say, you know, as we're doing it now, as they did it in the past. This makes them very comfortable. Unlike our modern society, where everything is about novelty and you know who has the next best thing, the best, the next best new thing, primarily. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the 12th century, in northern England and in a northern Europe. We have a whole generation of chroniclers, some of them are monastic, some of them are secular, and they, they all express the same thing, which is there's something new going on. <laughs> We've never seen this before. We've read classical literature, and surely if the Romans had seen something like this, they would have written it down. And what they're referring to is a phenomenon that we would basically refer to as zombies, um and and they are they very explicitly say the dead are rising from their graves. And these are not the these are not ghosts, these are not the insubstantial spirits, recognizable spirits of dead people who are returning to beseech our help um, in one way or another. These are the rotting corpses of nasty individuals, almost always men, um, who were really, really bad in life. And for some reason, their bodies are, anim- are animated after their death and they wander around their former communities. They, they harass uh, former acquaintances um, and they spread fear and sickness um, and traditional means of, of, of making them go away simply don't work. Um, only in one case does a letter of absolution from a bishop placed on the chest of the corpse when it's in its tomb cause it and uh, you know makes it makes it so that that corpse does not rise again but in the, and there there are many many of these stories um, in almost every case uh, we see local communities using what I would call traditional methods to deal with these walking corpses and so instead of praying what we see in many of these stories is, Monks arming themselves with battle axes and lurking in graveyards at night waiting for the corpses to rise so they can chop them up. Because uh, that's a really good way to deal with them. <laughs> they don't come back once you chop them up and burn them. Um, and these are, these are spirits that are animated purely by their own malevolence. And so this is really the beginning. Um, I think I've only found in the, in the Greco-Roman tradition one story of a corpse that rises up after a battle Um, But again, it behaves very much like a ghost. It beseeches the Romans who have defeated it to to treat their dead opponents with respect and to bury them. But in terms of uh, the risen dead who come back purely for the purpose of, you know, purely with malicious intent, Mm -hmm. we really begin to see that in the late 12th century.
0: That's That's fast. So so I'm going to ask you... We we had Mm -hmm. had a little bit of noise in the channel there. Can you say the last thing you did? Oh, I'm so sorry. Yes.
1: So um, the, uh, yeah, in terms of um, the, uh, in terms of the dead rising with malicious intent, we really only see that in the 12th century, from the 12th century onwards.
0: I want to enlist your help as a medieval. Can you hear me? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, there must be a, a little bit of jaggedness. I apologize to the listeners, but we shall press on cuz this stuff is great. Um so so you enlisting your help as an as a historian. Um we've got this monastic imagination, this, these historical imaginations and, you know, our contemporary post-enlightenment secular psychology, you know, generally these are ghost stories. These are horror stories. Um, How do you begin thinking historically in such a way that, that the nature of the cosmos allows for creatures like these? I mean, this, this is, these are not just stories around the fire that people are telling, right? These are chronicles which would be, are, we'd say are in the, mm, the, the genre of nonfiction. So, so we're well, in this different world, this historical imagination.
1: We are. And, um, and my, my anthology does a disservice, in a sense, to some of these chronicles because I extract th- these vignettes and I present them out of context. And really the way to understand them is within the political context in which they were written. And um, and so what we can see is whether or not we believe in the veracity of these stories is a whole other question. Um, these guys certainly found them to be important. So in the year 1200, people were, were gobbling up these stories, very, very interested in what they meant. But it's also clear that uh, these stories about th- these zombie stories or revenant stories about the corpses returning, they're almost, they they follow a particular formula, which is that the person in question who rises from the dead was always a malicious person always a bad person for one reason or another um but these stories are implanted within a larger political narrative um that has to do really with good and bad leadership good and bad rulership and so what these are in a sense what they can be read as it are little kind of pithy moral stories to say look at, you know here's here's our new king let's hope he behaves well. Oh, and by the way, here's something that's never happened before. Bad people are rising from the dead and causing a great deal of trouble in our community. And we have to deal with them by chopping them up and burning them. And it's not too much of a stretch to say, if the king is reading this, or the critics of the king are reading this, <laughs> let's, let's hope the king does not go that way. <laughs> let's hope the king is not someone who is bad, and therefore harmful to our communities, and therefore someone we need to to, to destroy. <laughs> um, and so reading these things alongside the political narrative suggests that they, they, they have a purpose there. They have a veiled political function as well. Um, but at the same time, they are, they are also these kind of self-contained vignettes, uh, in which we see these authors really struggling with, you know, with, with causation. Why are these things rising? You know, they, they, we see them using these terms like due to the mechan you know, due to the machinations of Satan or some other means we don't know. Um, so they, they're, they're, they're struggling with the new phenomenon, this idea that the dead are rising. Um, and, but they're also linking it to a political discourse and making didactic use of it to say, well, if there's a, you know, if, if, if there's a bad person who's responsible for chaos in our community, then we have to take violent means to destroy them. Um, so it's working on a couple of different levels, I think.
0: It's fascinating. It's fascinating. I, I think the uh, the issue that I was trying to to grapple with mm-hmm. is is this question of veracity. And I think one of the the challenges that I face, even in teaching Renaissance texts such as Shakespeare, um, yes. is that what we would now see a, as fantasy you know the kind of scholarly mechanism is to say, well, these are ideological; they have an ideological function; they have a didactic function. Um, but it's very hard to kind of get up there and lecture and say. No, there was there was a whole other way of envisioning the world where mm. these could be real, oddly enough. Um, the, the this would you know and, and I think that's the the fascinating thing about the anthology is as you're reading through it, the will to reduce it to to mere entertainment or mere ideology or a mere didactic story and then to try to think, well, no, what would be the, the imagination that's grappling with this? And um, that's one of the, the fun and fascinating things about the anthology.
1: Oh well thank you and and uh, you know I see the very same thing playing out in modern in modern discourse. I mean, you know, it is who would have guessed 15 or 20 years ago and maybe it would have been impossible 15 or 20 years ago to have a television show of immense popularity built around the idea of a zombie apocalypse. And um because because 15 or 20 years ago fear of immigration, fear of difference, fear of all these different things was 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 certainly not it, it didn't have the same tenor. Um, and so I think these things really go hand in hand. Um, I think that you can have political discourse that goes along with, with something that we would call entertainment and it can all, you know, there's, it's certainly all connected. There's sinews connecting it. There's, there's the, 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 what we're reading for entertainment or watching for entertainment is not divorced from, um, from current political concerns. Um, I tend to think of our modern relationship with the undead as being an abusive one. Uh, I think that in modern society, and we see, we see this anxiety as early as Shakespeare, um, because it really starts with the Protestants, but, you know, in divorcing ourselves, whether through because we're rationalists or skeptics or whatever we are, or scientific even, um, but by, but by letting go of a centuries old relationship with the dead, um, uh we 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 lose something tremendously we 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 lose this incredible continuity with those who came before us we um we we lose we you know we we threaten to lose a sense of our traditions um uh, we're abandoning something that was very fundamental for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years and and I don't think it's coincidental that reflexively we want to have some kind of uh commerce with people who are gone, even if it's, even if it's abusive, <laughs> even if, <it's, laughs> um, and, and maybe that's part of the appeal. I'm not sure exactly. I've, I've I'm, you know, well, I'm very interested in the undead and the stories of the undead. I'm also quite squeamish. So I don't watch these, you know, these, these programs. Um, so I'm not authoritative on the walking dead or anything like that. Um, so so maybe I'm you know I, mean, I could be completely off base somebody with more knowledge about it could, could could enlighten me I'm sure
0: I I foresee an email in your future from somebody listening <laughs> to this right now. Well please send it. Please do send it. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, so so there are a couple of, of moments in here that that readers of the Western Canon might have come across before some things from the the synoptics, um, you know, the moment from uh, the Odyssey that you mentioned. Um, another one is the, the scene from Hamlet where Hamlet's the ghost of Hamlet's father comes back. I'm curious, you know, given that uh, that some listeners might have, be familiar with that. What do you see in that scene, having put together this anthology, um, that we might not see if we hadn't done that work? And and before you answer that question, I want to also say there's so much here that I guarantee nobody listening to this has ever read that that's one of the great reasons to seek out the book. There's just these fascinating things. And at some point I want you to tell me a little bit about the sources that you've kind of ransacked for these things. Cause it's great. Yes. Thank you. Um,
1: well, one of the big turning points in the book is, is the Protestant reformation um, because Martin Luther in denying the efficacy of indulgences to get human souls out of purgatory, the payment of cash to, release souls from their suffering, Um, he also eventually, not right away, but certainly by the 1520s, was denying, uh, denying purgatory, uh, denying the existence of purgatory at all. Um, you know, Luther and his followers wanted to recreate a Christian community based on the text of the New Testament, and, um, you know, in reading the New Testament, they could see many of the medieval traditions that had made the church wealthy, um, whether it's indulgences or the rise of purgatory or even the papacy and the notion of papal authority, none of those things appear in the new Testament. And so he rejected them. Now he was reminded by his critics that the word Trinity doesn't appear in the new Testament either, but that didn't seem to bother him. Um, And so the Protestants introduce a distinctive break. If there's no purgatory, there's no, there's no ghosts, right? Ghosts do not generally speaking, come from hell. Once you're in hell, you can't get out. And the saints certainly do return from heaven. But most of us aren't saints, um, and so everyday ghosts that people have been seeing for centuries, he now denied that that these ghosts were actually coming from a third place where they were suffering before they entered into paradise. But he could not deny the fact that many people considered c- continued to see apparitions that looked like people they knew, and so the the Protestants. Made a definitive break by saying, "Well, look at what you're seeing is not a dead person. It is sometimes an angel in disguise who's come to help you, but that's very rare. More than likely, it is it is a demon that has come to deceive you." And here, Luther is drawing his authority on uh, Augustine. Long for you know for a millennium, Augustine's thinking about ghosts had been ignored. Uh, Luther found in him an authority he could actually agree with. Because Augustine also denied the return of the dead in a recognizable form um, and so this is all this is all the lead up to say that uh, what Luther introduced into the Western tradition was something brand new I mean we stressed the continuity between greco-roman antiquity and the Middle Ages in terms of this continuous commerce with the dead and it was really a Christian uh, Martin Luther who broke the tradition but imagine the I mean, we tend to think of Christianity as being a kind of, you know, certain certain popular varieties of Christianity as being a kind of, you know, fire and brimstone religion. But Christianity actually, medieval Christians actually created the ultimate safety net. <laughs> only the truly wicked go to hell. Most of us go to purgatory uh, where our sins will be burned away over time. It's certainly unpleasant, but the final destination is great, right? We're all going to heaven in the end. Luther takes that away by saying, you know, we, we only, uh, all we have is faith. Um, God pre-elects, pre-chooses who's going to go to heaven, and the rest of us will go to hell. And psychologically, that is a real hammer blow to most people. Um, people will, you know, people do follow Luther's teaching, but at the same time, they've now lost that safety net. They are acting in faith that they will be one of the elect. And what I think we see in Hamlet, and it is a playing out of this anxiety, uh, Hamlet is almost certainly the cues in the first act almost certainly point to the fact that he is a Protestant, at least he's being, he's trained in the Protestant tradition. He's come home from going to school at the University of Wittenberg where Luther taught. Um, When he's told that there's a ghost or an apparition or whatever it is, uh, walking the ramparts of the castle uh, and he approaches it, he says, are you a spirit of health or a goblin damned? That is, he uses Protestant categories to define it. Are you an angel or a devil? But when the ghost the ghost has two things that it really says that are of importance, first, it calls for vengeance, and that's not what Christian ghosts tend to do <laughs> um, and Here Shakespeare is really hearkening back to the to the tragedies of Seneca, a uh, first century Roman author who wrote several plays that are tragedies which feature ghosts that call for vengeance um, and seneca had recently been translated into english um, you know a decade or two before shakespeare was writing he was well aware of these translations he read them and he co-opts this ancient model of the theatrical ghost in crafting the ghost of hamlet's father But the ghost also asks for help. He wants to be remembered. He says that he's suffering for his sins because he died abruptly. He's poisoned by his brother before he can confess. And therefore, he's suffering. And so Hamlet is confronted. uh, Hamlet is a Protestant being confronted with the ghost of his Catholic father. (laughs) And so we see the two traditions facing each other. Now, Hamlet, I mean, uh, Shakespeare is very sly here. If any Protestant critics came and said, "Well, look at you're presenting a Catholic ghost here. This is not right," um, he could say, "No, this is not a Catholic ghost. This is a this is a ghost out of the." Cla-
0: Scott, Scott, <laughs> Scott. I'm so sorry. We we had a freakish power outage here. The power is still out. I can only think that it's the uh, the other world. Um, so either your, your answer is so right or so wrong that you're getting an affirmation from a, another, another plane. Um, but you were telling us how Shakespeare has constructed this, uh, this way out, um, just in case he gets called out for, for bringing on Catholic ghosts. Yes.
1: Yeah. And I, think, and I think one of the things that's so wonderful about the play Hamlet, which is, which of course, is wonderful in so many ways, is the way that it tries to tackle uh, the anxiety that um that that certain people must have felt when their Catholic safety net was taken away, and they were um you know like like Luther himself in the in the in the grips of of wondering whether God's mercy was there for them, wondering whether they would be saved, um, wondering whether their final destination was actually heaven or hell
0: well so well, so given that the undead are are now monitoring our call, um, I'm going to ask you a little bit about what, what you're doing next. Now that you've finished this anthology, what's, what's after the undead.
1: Sure. Well, like, like many academics, I've got many pots burning and boiling on the stove. Um, But I'm really happy to say that the people at Penguin really enjoyed this anthology and they, they approached me about doing uh, another one and um, which I'm very, very delighted to do. Um, My editor came to me with um, the idea of uh, he asked me whether or not people in the Middle Ages had, you know, uh, near death experiences and saw visions of heaven and things like that. And I said, well, you know, of course they did. But those visions are very dull. Uh, for the most part, I said, but what, they, you know, but what was really fascinating is, is visions of hell. And, um, and they gobbled that up right away. And so um, I'm now at work on the, the Penguin Book of Hell, uh, 3,000 Years of Torment, uh, which will look at images of the punitive afterlife from the Mesopotamians all the way up to modern America. Um, in fact, one of the subtitles we've, we've thrown around is From Gehenna to Guantanamo um so uh so yes so look for the penguin book of hell in the fall of 2018 um and uh really wonderful talking to you thank you so much
0: well we we send our heroes to the underworld to do things for us to rescue people you're gonna spend three thousand years in hell Uh, i hope when you come back you'll come back to the new books network so we can celebrate (laughs) it i hope so too thank you very much thank you scott my name is eric LeMay. And you've been listening to an interview with Scott Bruce, editor of the anthology The Penguin Book of the Undead, 1500 Years of Supernatural Encounters on the New Books Network.